when you're on the wrong path and you're running the wrong race, losing is a good idea, not a bad thing. Thrive Friends, this is your host, Dr. Solomon. How could we use uncertain times as a hidden opportunity to grow? Today, I'm joined by Jake Jacobs, a professional colleague who will help us answer this tough question. Jake is author of three books, Real-Time Strategic Change, You Don't Have to Do It Alone, which was reviewed in New York Times as, quote, the best of current books on the topic of involvement, close quote, and his most recent one, Leverage Change. He has been featured in Inc., Huffington Post, among other leading management magazines. The books are based on his 35 years in consulting to many agencies, including the City of New York, U.S. Army and Navy, UK National Health and Employment Services. Jake, welcome to Thrive. Thank you so much, Dr. Solomon. I'm pleased to be here. Thank you for being with me today. Congratulations on your latest book, Leverage Change, Eight Ways to Achieve Faster, Easier, and Better Results. Thank you for that as well. Lots have been written, Jake, about change management. What gap does your new book fill in the organization change rivalry? Yeah, so I, I think, Dr. Solomon, there are many gaps that it fills, but one of them that is most significant, uh, and I think your listeners will understand this, is that people face resistance when they're trying to create change. And I work with many leaders of change, and this is the most common complaint. There are people in one way or another fighting against what they're trying to do. And I have these levers that I've developed. Each of them addresses a common problem that organizations and individuals face when they're trying to bring about change. And this particular problem of resistance, the lever that I designed is called develop a future people will want to call their own. So what this does is it means that if I'm resisting change, I don't want to go there. Wherever there is, I don't want to be. When you develop a future that people want to call their own, they do want to be there. They want to claim it as their own. You develop a future, and part of this is you listen to people and you engage them in the process of developing that future. So it's not something that is forced upon people, but it's something that they choose out of their own volition. And so by developing that future people want to call their own, the resistance goes away. It disappears. And I've worked with a lot of people in 35 years of consulting, and they say to me, that's impossible. I mean, how could that possibly? I've faced resistance since I started trying to do this work. And I said, well, let's step back and develop that future. And when people want to own something, you know, we own what we help create is one of the sayings that I learned in my career early on. So if we can create opportunities for people to create their collective future, then there's ownership of that future. And then we deal with resistance in an entirely different way. We don't try and convince somebody that we're right and they're wrong. That only creates more resistance. But what we do is we draw a circle that includes them in the process of creating the future. And in doing so, that resistance melts and goes away on its own. So it's a process of co-creation that decreases the resistance to change. Absolutely. Absolutely. Jake, every person and organization now is exhausted after the pandemic. This is not a secret. Based on your book, what would you think are three practical steps that both employees and organizations can do to deal with the change fatigue? So people are overwhelmed with change. And, and frankly, I think they were overwhelmed before the pandemic. 
Uh, and they're going to be overwhelmed after the pandemic. The pandemic just multiplied it by a, a, a factor of, of 10. But one thing that I do, uh, doctor, is that most people who deal with change, that's what they talk about. That's what they focus on. That's what they try and achieve. What I do is I also talk about what not to change. And by focusing on what not to change, it, it makes the game a different one to be playing. When we talk about change, it creates anxiety. It creates um, people being nervous about what the future means, and they and they tend to lose confidence. But when we talk about what's going to continue, as it has in the past, those things get reversed. I feel much more confident. Uh, I feel excited because I'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. There are things that we've done that have been really successful in the past, and we need to continue doing those. And it also gives people. Uh, firm ground, I say, to take a leap into the unknown of what the future is, because we know that some of the things, in fact, most of the things in an organization are going to stay the same, even in the most radical change efforts. I'm going to work at the same place. I'm working with the same people. My job is generally the same. So there are a lot of things that stay the same. And if we don't pay attention to those, we overwhelm people with change. And, it, and it's actually, I would argue, it's not even realistic. There are two sides to the coin. There are two hands that clap. And if we ignore continuity, we're actually ignoring half or more of reality. And that just doesn't lead to good decisions. So that's one thing that I would do around change fatigue. Another piece of advice that I would give your listeners is what I write in the book, I call four magic words. And if leaders could learn these words and say them twice a day to anybody that they meet, they would have an easier time of it. And they are, could you say more? And what this means is it's an invitation to people to get on the playing field. It's saying to them, I value what you have to say. I can learn from you. And this creative future that we talked about creating, the collective future, that's how it becomes possible is that we stop, look and listen, and we create space for other people to step into it. I, I talk often with leaders about letting go about caring less. Now, this is very difficult for most leaders to do. And this is my third piece of advice is actually care less. Now I say, how can I possibly do that? This is my livelihood. I'm in charge. I'm responsible. And what I say care less means is that if I take up all of the caring that's available, think of this circle of caring that's there that you can grab hold of. And if I claim all of it is the leader, there's nothing left for my people. And so if I can let go a little of the control and say to people, I trust you, I will give you information and I trust you to make wise decisions, then other people start to care and start to get committed. And when other people care and are committed, again, it becomes a different conversation. It's not that I'm trying to talk you into creating this future. It's one that you own and one that you claim. So I think the third piece of advice, which is kind of paradoxical, I will admit, is to care less about the work you're doing so others can care more. I couldn't agree more with you, Jake, especially for the late millennials and Gen Z. One of their top priorities, at least based on the surveys done, is feeling a sense of purpose, feeling that they are part of organization and they are not just two hands for someone else's brain. Right. And I would say, Dr. Solomon, that th this has been true for a long time, that, you know, 
my father and grandfather were not interested in putting a screw in a hole and being satisfied by calling that work. That, you know, I worked very early uh, in the mid 80s. I started my consulting career working at Ford. And they used to say, the workers said, you know, they want us to bring our hands into work and to leave our brains outside. And you know, nobody wants to do that. We want to make a contribution. We want to make a difference. We want to realize our full potential. And part of that potential is the thinking that we can add, the strategic thinking that we can add to any work that we're doing. And so whether it's Gen Z or whether it's going back 50, 100 years, I think people want to get out of bed in the morning and make a contribution. Henry Ford is famous for saying, or infamous for saying, why every time I need two hands, it comes with a brain. Before we move on to the next part of this lovely conversation, I would like to ask the audience to open a new tab and look up Jake Jacobs Consulting and go to the part where you can download his 27 ways to become more efficient and faster. And if you can download it for free at no cost on his website, again, Jake jacobsconsulting.com and the link is included in the YouTube description below. Jake, you make a very bold statement in your book. You claim that you can accelerate changes made in an organization so that the results are achieved in half the time. How is that possible, Jake? Yeah, and I, I, I may be wrong about that. So I have to admit that at the beginning, Dr. Solomon, it could be less than half the time. Okay. So I, I thought you would say, yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. So how is this possible? Well, I believe that the reason that change is so slow in organizations, right? And difficult, it comes from a flawed paradigm. Our mindset itself talks about the future as something that will occur at a later point in time. It, it's out there and eventually we'll get there. So if I have a five-year plan in some way, even when I'm successful achieving the five-year plan, I, I have to wait five years because that's what the plan says. Well, I would prefer that people deal with this problem with the lever that says, think and act as if the future were now. So what do I mean by that? What I mean is that if you get any picture of the future, and it doesn't have to be the whole future and it doesn't have to be in bright colors. I mean, I'm talking about any image of the future at all. I had clients once who were working on a manufacturing floor and they had an issue and they said, well, look, we want to be able to partner with people across the whole plant floor to figure out what's wrong with this machine. And they started to put plans together for meetings and ways that they were gonna collaborate and they were redesigning the manufacturing processes. And I said to them, I said, listen, if we thought and act as if we were in the future, if we were partnering with these people right here, right now today, what would we be thinking and acting? What would we decide and do differently? And they said, well, I mean, the first thing that we would do is that we would go have a conversation with them. We, we wouldn't plan a meeting, we'd actually have a meeting. And in fact, it wouldn't be one that was in a conference room or an offsite, it would be right here on the plant floor. And so I said to him, go have your conversation. Think and act as if the future were now, rather than waiting for some point in time when you're gonna get around to it, you start behaving differently today. And what you tend to find is the line between the present and future starts to get blurry. I don't know what's, was what I just did because it was as if the future were now, but was that part of the present or was I actually acting in the future? It gets confusing for people. And I think it's a really, really healthy confusion because 
it leads to an increase in what I call the believability index. And what I mean by that, Dr. Solomon, is people look left and right in organizations to say, is this for real? Is this change going to stick? Is this too shall pass? You know, I've seen it come and go and this will go too. And so people have a lot of um, uh, negative views of change. And I, I say to them, yeah, it makes sense why you do. But when you think and act as if the future were now, I start to look left and right at my colleagues and they're behaving differently. They're making different decisions because they're acting as if the future were now. My own believability index goes up because I say, hey, look, this isn't just talk. I can see people behaving differently. And so it starts a virtuous cycle. It's much easier for me to start to behave differently when I look around the organization and I see others behaving differently. And it becomes a, a great big snowball of change that gets bigger and bigger as more and more people think and act as if the future were now. And pretty soon, what we thought was gonna be a five-year plan turns out in a year or two to start behaving differently. I, I tell you one other quick story. It was with a energy company and uh, nine months from saying we need to do business differently. They had turned huge numbers on their return on fixed assets, on launching a new business, um, on selling and sharing services. They had extra resources that they weren't using. And within three months, they launched a brand new business, renting out this machinery to other energy companies. And so rather than this being something that they had to wait years to turn this ship around, no, 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 in nine months. And that's from saying, go. That's not from implementation. That's from saying, we need to do some things differently and then figuring out what those were, doing them and starting to collect the results. This is very similar to scenario thinking, I assume, and people need to think about the future as if it is now, as, as you said. So here's one dilemma, Jay. If an organization has multiple scenarios evolving, how they can pick the one that they should put their money on and say, yes, we are going to invest in this? I believe, and I learned this in, from my manufacturing clients, in something called rapid prototyping, is it means that you take a small step and then you check, and you take another small step and you check. So what happens is I believe that organizations do better by working on many fronts at once. So rather than picking one and making a really big bet on one thing, which, you know, if you win, that's great, but if you lose, it's terrible. So if you have rapid prototyping, you can move on many fronts at once and start to see which one is paying us, which one's giving us a good return on investment. And some may pay quicker, some may pay bigger, some may cost more, some may require new processes. I mean, there are a whole set of variables that I think organizations need to look at. And depending on what they're trying to accomplish, some of these scenarios are gonna be better than others. But rather than playing the whole scenario out and spending two years implementing something to find out whether I won that bet, what I believe is that with many small bets, you can start to take winnings off the table very early. And so rather than again, having to wait to get these returns, I, I, my clients have said to me in the past, and we have this group consultation program I was talking to you about earlier, where a group of leaders comes together and works through the levers as a group, as a team. And they've said, well, we don't have enough money to make this investment in this new machinery or this new process or this new product development. And what I said is, look, you don't need to have all that money. We're gonna bet early 
and take those winnings off the table. And for those who bet or go to Vegas, you know, playing with house money is better. So if I win early, I can start betting with the money that I won. The rest of it, I can go put in my pocket and not worry about losing. In this case, those winnings that I take, I can invest. And so over time, I start to have, in fact, more time, money, and energy, more resources than I started with. And those are the ones that we can start investing with. Thank you for sharing this, Jake. And people who are watching us, if you haven't done this already, open a new tab, look up Jake Jacobs Consulting and download the 27 ways to make your change work faster, easier, and better. The download is for free. And Jacob has 35 plus years experience in involvement in change management. And I'm sure you will learn a lot from his insight. As this wonderful conversation is coming to an end, I'd like to ask you the question I ask every successful person I interview on Thrive. We all had setbacks where we managed to go from striving to thriving. Would you mind sharing one of yours and how you managed to overcome? Yeah. Um, I worked as a independent consultant or small consulting firms for a number of years. And I was approached by a larger firm and they said that they wanted to make use of my approaches and, and uh, uh, my resources. And I said, that sounds really exciting. That sounds like I could have greater impact by joining a larger organization. And what I found out, uh, Dr. Solomon, was um, that was not the case. They actually wanted me to do exactly what they had been doing for years. And they wanted me to do the same thing. And I was there for two years and I, I used to, uh, the metaphor I have is that I used to stand up and, and run as hard as I could in trying to add value in the ways I thought I best could. And I would run into a wall and I would hit my head and I would fall down on the seat of my pants and I would dust myself off and I would walk back to the starting line again. And then I would run again, trying to add value the best way I do. I did this for two years. I must, you know, my head hurt at the end of it. And it was very humbling because I had not uh, failed in this way before in my life. I, I went to school, I graduated summa cum laude. Uh, I, I played sports, we won league championships. Uh, all these things, I, I wrote my first book when I was 32 years old and it was a bestseller. So I had a whole string of achievements that I was looking at and I was quite humbled because I could not figure out how to be successful in this consulting firm. I, I just couldn't get it. And what I learned from that was to listen to my own voice, to realize when it's time to do something different that, you know, I could still be there running against the wall with my head, but I wouldn't have added value for them. I wouldn't have added value for me. I even went home to my family and I was quite frustrated. And when I started to see me, my own self taking it out on my wife and children, you know, like I was in a bad mood when I got home and I said, you know, th this has gone far enough. And so listening to my own voice, I sort of refound myself and what I believed was the best way to go about change and worked with colleagues who shared those values and beliefs. And so really getting back on track was a, was a way of going back to my roots, what I had learned from my mentors and learned from the reading and the studying and the consulting that I'd done for years. And by going back to home in a way, uh, I found 
great joy and I think great value for my clients. And so this notion of, you know, try and be somebody who you're not is, is really bad advice. And so I thought that I was going down one path with them. And as it turned out, I wasn't And it. It took me a full two years to, you know, give up in one sense, but to get the future that I and others deserved in another sense. So I, I, I think it's a great question that you ask. And like I said, it was very humbling. I hadn't met failure like this before. And I, I got joked around my brother just the other night was like, well, you did get fired once you remember. And I was like, mm, it was sort of a mutual agreement. I don't know whether I left first or they asked me to leave first, but it did happen. And I think that being humbled and being able to get called back and say, what really matters? Who am I? And what value do I add? These are the questions that I think we should be answering for ourselves. Did you ever had a chance to ask them, Jake, you hired me for X, I am doing Y, what's going on? Oh yeah, in fact, they, uh, I will tell you one uh, fun story, Dr. Solomon, which was um, the hierarchy. I was not used to a hierarchy. I had worked in a network of people. And so I was living in Los Angeles at the time. And on my business card, there was a, a base office in San Francisco, but there wasn't one in Los Angeles. I was in Los Angeles to, to build that market up. And I wanted to put Los Angeles on my business card because that, that's where I lived and I was supposed to build that market up. And the US head of operations nixed it. She said, no, no, we don't have an office in Los Angeles. I mean, they had a human resources group there, but they didn't have our consulting. And she said, I, I don't want Los Angeles on your card. You should have San Francisco on your card. And this went to the senior leadership council of the firm and the international boss overruled her and said, no, no, we should put Los Angeles on the card. And at that moment, I should have realized that something was amiss. When we were fighting about what city to put on my card, when I lived in LA and I worked in LA, I should have noticed that something was amiss, but I didn't. And so I did ask questions as I went and it just, there was not a meeting of the minds. There's like magical meetings of the minds. None of those did occur. And um, I did the best that I could. And maybe I could still be there if I wanted to work the way that they wanted to work. But it wasn't true to my heart, wasn't true to my soul. And so I, um, I made a different decision. And financially, that must have been something. Yeah, I mean, what I did is I went from a level of certainty uh, to the uncertainty of being an entrepreneur. And you don't know as an entrepreneur what's going to be happening. I talked with you before uh, we got on the air and I said, you know, I'm reinventing my business and I don't know the outcome of that. But what I do know is at the end of the day, and I, I would say this to your listeners too, I would rather bet on myself. At the end of the day, I would rather bet on myself and I check my own excitement. And when you're excited about something and when you're energized by something and you talk to people about it and they reflect that back, there's a sparkle in your eye, you know you're on a good path. And so I think that's something to trust about ourselves as well. And I, I, I think that sparkle was missing in my eye for those two years. And, uh, and I finally came to peace with it and said, it's okay to come up short. When you're on the wrong path and you're running the wrong race, losing is a good idea, not a bad thing. It's a sunk cost. 
it's a sunk cost. It's a lesson to be learned and we carry it forward with us. If this would give you any solace, you know that bad employees make good entrepreneurs. <laughs> yeah, well, I hope that that's true and it does give me some solace. I'll remember that. What a pleasure to have you on Thrive Geek. Thank you. I've, I've really enjoyed myself and I hope I hope that people have gained value. And you've mentioned a couple times that 27 ways. What people will find is each of the eight levers has three or four ideas on it. And I purposefully came up with immediate actions that you could take. So like if you want to prove that this is worthwhile for you, like should I even get the book, pull that down for free, like you said, and try a few of those ideas out. And if you find value in those, then take the next step forward. And Lord knows if you don't, then go find something else to invest in that's going to get you a better return. Thank you for sharing this. People watching us, until we meet next time, keep safe, keep motivated, keep resilient, and see you in the next episode of Thrive. Thank you.